you're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, everyone. It's Steph, BuildUp's Executive Portfolio Liaison. This week on the Nonprofit Buildup is part one of a two-part panel discussion originally recorded at the Peak 2022 conference. Moderated by BuildUp's CEO, A. Nicole Campbell, and in conversation with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Deputy Director, Melanie Brown, Just Leadership USA's President and CEO, Deanna Hoskins, and Herald Advisors Principal, Alicia Taylor. This presentation was originally recorded in March 2022. In this episode, Nick... Melanie, Deanna, and Alicia dive into the practice of progressive grant making, discuss the inequalities that traditional grant making have on the marginalized communities it aims to serve, and how to align the definition of risk with an organization's appetite for risk. You won't want to miss it. And with that, here is part one of Managing Risk for Equitable Grant Making. Hi, everyone again, and welcome. Now I'm pleased to turn it over to our speakers for the Managing Risk for Equitable Grant Making session. Over to you all. Thanks so much, Claire, and hello, everyone. My name is Nick Campbell, and I am the founder and CEO of the Build Up Companies. We work only with brave nonprofits and philanthropies to strengthen their organizational infrastructure so that they're best placed to do their work. And for our clients, that means interrupting cycles of inequity and injustice. That's why I'm so excited to have this conversation today. This discussion is about being brave, calling out practices and perspectives, and sharing the thought leadership of Black women who often stand in the vanguard of social justice in the sector, both domestically and internationally, to ultimately inform how the entire sector should come to this work. During our conversation today, we'll explore what it means to both work and award funding in a way that doesn't contribute to or perpetuate harmful practices and power dynamics of the same inequitable system in which we operate when working with vulnerable communities. We'll also focus on the relationship between risk and decision-making, risk and equity, and risk and inclusion, and how risk ultimately informs, supports, and can even derail equitable grant-making. My colleague, Stephanie, is also joining us from BuildUp, and so she will be monitoring the chat and be able to get to all the questions that you might have so that we can make sure that we address them during our QS. Could each of you take a minute or two and introduce yourself and the focus of your work, given the context of our conversation today, which is about managing risk and equitable grant making? Alicia, I'll start with you. Good afternoon, and I'm excited to join you today. I'm Dr. Alicia Taylor, Principal of Herald Advisors. My academic background is in international educational development, and my focus is on education policy and systems that enable governments to provide education to even their most marginalized communities. I spent 10 years as a grant maker with the Open Society Foundations, and in 2016, when I transitioned, I was the deputy director of, the global educa- of their global education program. And for the past five years, I've been working independently at Herald Advisors, partnering with 
leaders and organizations um, and supporting them to thrive within the intersections of education, international development, and philanthropy. Thanks so much, Alicia. Deanna. Yes, good afternoon. I'm grateful to be here. My name is Deanna Hoskins. I'm the president and CEO of Just Leadership USA. We're the only national organization that has been founded by and operated by formerly incarcerated individuals. And we invest in their leadership by educating, elevating, and empowering their voices to change their communities or addressing the policies that continue to oppress and marginalize them. I came to this work through way of working at increasing levels of government from state, local, and federal government and engagement. And I realized that the leaders we were missing from the conversation were those directly impacted by the issues we were trying to address. So my focus is on bringing that expertise to those tables of policy change. Thanks, Deanna. And Melanie. Thank you, Nick. It is a pleasure to be here with you, Deanna and Alicia. Hi, everyone. I am Melanie Brown. I am Deputy Director at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I sit on the Foundation's North America team, which is focused on the Foundation's investments in the United States and Canada. I lead a team focused on public engagement. And so we are responsible for managing the relationships, constituency relationships that are influential to our strategies and our strategies being successful. So that includes faith communities and business sector and also communities of color. I believe I said this, but if not, I'll say again, I've been at Gates for about seven years. Prior to that, I was at the Heinz Endowments for eight years. So I've been in this field of philanthropy for, for 15 years as a Black woman grant maker, managing risk and internally and externally and moving money to communities of color. So just really excited to have this conversation today. Well, thank you all so much. And you can understand why I was very excited about this panel and having this conversation, particularly given the perspectives that each of our panelists bring. And so my first question is that, you know, the relationship between bias and risk inherently informs a grant maker's efforts in capacity building and support of organizations. Now, we talk a lot about risk, but there doesn't seem to be a shared definition of risk within the sector, right, that we've all adopted. How do each of you define risk? I can start from there. Thank you for that question, Nick. And I think this came up because one of my concerns from a philanthropy perspective, even when applications are denied or you're working with philanthropy, that risk that they evaluate each application on is never publicly shared. So if you're a small nonprofit, Black-led organization, you never know what gaps in your organizational structure, what gaps in your capacity you need to feel to become a viable grantee of that fund, that grant maker. And with that, I internally can look at my operations, how my development team is, how we're being responsible as stewards of the funding granted to us to carry out our mission, but also always struggling to identify what are the risks or things that the philanthropist or the grant maker that I'm applying to is looking for. There is no transparency there. Even when they say they're investing in capacity building, what is defined as capacity building to them may be totally different as where I'm looking at capacity building of strengthening organizational processes and expanding the organization to grow where they may be looking at something totally different. But because there's no transparency, there's no clear meaning, we struggle with that in the equitable. But you have larger organizations who may not be having the impact to infiltrate the communities we're actually trying to engage with, 
but because they have this huge structure, they've been around for 60 years, it's assumed that they are less risky than the newer organizations who are under 10 years old. So for, for me, um, I define risk as or understand it as just simply the, the level of comfort that an organization or a funder may have. And I think it's also um, important to recognize that at a definitional term, it really is obscure and that risk can be identified as or understood as what Levi Strauss um, referred to as a floating signifier, meaning that there's no agreed upon meaning and essentially means inherently means different things to different people. So I see it as an opportunity or even a requirement really for organizations to stop and define it. What does it mean and what does it even refer to? And also to understand what or who is being put at risk. Is it, are we, do we understand or do organizations understand risk in terms of reputation, resources, physical safety, impact, or even emotional security of grantees? And also who is impacted by risk? Just the funder or, and to what extent do we consider the risks to grantee partners? And as Deanna was saying, the critical piece there is for organizations to clarify and be transparent around their unique understanding and approach to risk. I'll just add, I mean, I, I agree with much that has been said. And what I think of, and I and I don't think that funders do a good job of explaining this to grantees, is that when I'm looking at making an investment, I'm also thinking about, is this investment going to allow me and therefore the foundation to achieve its goals, right? Is it a risk to us meeting what, what we are being told we need to achieve in order to reach our goals or to stay in alignment with our broader priorities. And so it's not always just about that individual partner, but how does this partner fit within a portfolio of investments that I'm trying to move in order to achieve a goal? And so I agree with Deanna that it is very obscure and it is very difficult to understand when a foundation says that you're risky. At the same time, foundations should be willing to make risky investments. If we're not making risky investments and, and making a mistake, then we're actually not doing our job. So it is that balance of comfort, but it's also a willingness to understand that you may have some outliers. I always think of my work as, as a target. And so I have some partners who are on the bullseye of that target. And maybe those are ones that are a little bit safer for whatever criteria I may use for, for safe. But then I have some that are in the outer rings of that target. And it doesn't mean that they're not good investments. It could mean that I'm testing some things out, that I'm willing to take a risk, that I'm trying to see, is this something that could eventually go into that bullseye? And then sometimes not everything has to fit into that bullseye because that's not how change happens with just one strategy. So it is a combination of things. But then I, the last thing I'll say is just, I often ask myself, what is the risk of not investing in a partner? And I think, Deanna, that, that you really hit on this. Of, as I said, I, I lead our work, Foundations Engagement with Communities of Color in the U.S. And what is at risk if we don't invest in those organizations? And if we don't invest in them at the same level and over the same amount of time, we are our other investments, our white-led organizations. And so I just wanted to add that nuance that there is often... A risk that if we look at these organizations, some of them who've been around for 60 years and they're not having impact with communities of color, the risk is actually to keep investing in them, right? That is the risk, not to move funding to a new organization or a person of color led organization. 
No, I, I really appreciate all of your definitions and the way you are looking at risk. From even what you just shared, you're talking about risk being you know, the level of comfort that a grantmaker mm-hmm. might have. There's the risk of not investing and, and what happens if you don't. And then really the, that taking a step back and looking at the grant as a part of a portfolio of grants and within your grant making and saying, well, how does that fit? Does it fit? And raising those questions. So I'm going to ask a, a follow-up question to what you all just shared. Do you think that Black-led organizations are more impacted by how risk is perceived, defined, or not defined at all? And do you actually think that the lack of definition that exists throughout the sector, particularly uh, within grant-making organizations, is deliberate? Can I just say yes and then not have to expand on my answer? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. Philanthropy is is intentionally obscure. It's not just for for Black-led organizations. Philanthropy doesn't want you to know how we do what we do. And so pushing for transparency in a sector that does not want to be transparent, at least historically has not, we've certainly seen some changes in that more recently, is a challenge in and of itself. And so I think if you look at anything in our society where Black-led, people of color-led, is put at a disadvantage, we see that happening in philanthropy as well. And I think that we don't define risk. One, I don't think we could define risk. I don't think there's one definition for risk for every, uh, that would be a blanket for the sector, but I do think every institution could be better at thinking about risk. But I have to believe that it's intentional, even if it's not intended to be harmful. I think it's intended to be a little bit close to the chest. To protect ourselves. But I welcome a challenge to that. No, I, I totally agree that when I, when I look at the risk of funders and, you know, I, I'm a person who's known to be very authentic and just speak my voice. And, and I look at situations that are happening now and, and I'll take Mackenzie Scott. I, I love what she's doing, actually disseminating it, but no one knows how to get on her radar. When you look at the organizations that she is investing in, you know, there's a team of researchers that are just investing and looking at people, organizations from the outside and not really even having conversation with operations. What is the impact? So when you look at that, you look at, okay, do I need to increase my social media presence? Do I need to be a nationally attached organization with chapters in 50 states? Do I need to be the Black-led organization ran by formerly incarcerated individuals that's attached to celebrities and those different things that is actually being highlighted when the true passion and the work lies within the impact that we're having and the people we're touching and the communities we're empowering. But nobody knows. Nobody knows. Even if it's a secret anonymous ballot, how do you put who you are so that they can identify these organizations that aren't attached to celebrities, these organizations that don't have chapters in every state, such as a Boys and Girls Club or Planned Parenthood, that are actually having the impact. So when I say is it intentional, I think it is. But Melanie said something that I wanted to follow up on when she said it's risky not to invest in other organizations. Because here's the thing, if we're really going to change and our investment is around changing and making the world better in some kind of way, we have to be willing to try something different. And sometimes trying something different 
is the innovation and the thinking outside the box, but it's really hard to get philanthropy to move in that direction and take those chances when you don't have those major celebrity connections or you're not in 50 different states. So do I think it's intentional? I think it is. While they are, they'll pick up some Black-led organizations or formerly incarcerated, you then look who they're attached to and they're, the one philanthropy doesn't want to be the first one. But once one mm-hmm. takes a chance, everyone else will follow because it actually looks safe and we won't be the only ones called out if it doesn't work out. And just to add to that briefly, I think in addition to transparency around funders' appetites for risk to build on what something that Melanie pointed out, I think there's a lack of transparency around the actual goals and intentions of some organizations and a need for, for transparency and clarity around that. So just to know, is an organization or a funder seeking to create more diverse organizations or diverse leadership in a sector? Is it to get more refugees in schools? Some funders, their goal is to be the, perhaps develop a reputation of being the riskiest or being the largest or most prominent philanthropy that's moving the needle on a particular issue. So I think understanding that broad goal and then finding the appetite, identifying the appetite for risk within that framework. So what I'm hearing from you all, right, is this idea that it's intentional. There's not a lot of transparency and that's deliberate. Uh, And then you are also kind of struggling with this idea of like, what is actually the stated goal of the program, of the work, of the organization? So I'm thinking about how do we start to shift risk frameworks, right? So amidst all of what you just shared, lack of transparency, it's really deliberate. This lack of definition of risk is also very deliberate. How can we shift risk frameworks within grant makers, particularly in the context of capacity building, given that we struggle with all of the things that you just called out? And we're also struggling with this idea of how do we invest in organizations? Do we focus on deliverables? Do we focus on outcomes? Do we focus on impact, which is, you know, kind of building on what Alicia just shared? So how do you start to shift risk frameworks within grant makers, given the context in which we are operating? Melanie, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. (laughs) I would love to hear from one of my fellow panelists on that. And I, I, I will admit to not being sure. I'm not sure how we shift it. Individual practice, yes, I think as, as institutions, it's it's a lot more difficult. And so I, I, I don't mean to not contribute, but I, I don't want to fumble around in an answer if Deanna and Alicia have something much more brilliant to share. I don't know. Well, actually, it is brilliant because it's, I'm, I'm going to pick up on what the, on something that Deanna has said. <laughs> so I'll, I'll pick up on her, on, on her brilliance. I think um, one of the ways we can start to shift risk frameworks is really perhaps by interrogating the grant making of organizations. And so looking into, for example, the example that Deanna held up around um, Mackenzie Scott. I'm um, using this just as an as as an example, and and really tracing the types of organizations that funds are going to, and really asking the question and assessing like, is this actually a risky investment when investments are are channeled towards organizations with higher profiles, celebrity connections, international and international networks. So who is favored and who is left out and asking those asking those questions and then looking at what again the goal that organize that funders want to contribute to 
or achieve and looking at uh, and, and comparing their investments to their decisions around investments to the organizations or a broader un- understanding of organizations that are on the ground and doing the work that they say that they want to invest in and, and, and to see what is there some space between that. So again, it's almost sort of forcing additional transparency. And I'll follow up to what Alicia said. To even go deeper than that, I I always question when funders say, this is what we want to do with our money versus what is the mission you came to the work to create this foundation? Was it identifying the injustices that you see in a community, the injustices or the disparities that you see? So are you perpetrating disparities in even your grant making while you're saying your funding is going to disrupt disparities, right? So I always, I shy away from funding opportunities that say, this is what we want you to do with our funding, because what you want me to do, because you don't have close proximity to the problem, you've just read some research, may not be applicable in practice, right? So is there a way for funders to say, this is our mission to disrupt the disparities that we see, the injustices, but we're going to support organizations that have close proximity to those issues to help provide the solution. And we're not going to tell them how to drive the solution. We're going to support their proposed solutions in that manner. And and I don't know if that makes sense because what happens, you typically go after funding. And if you're a small shop like us, while we're national, if you're a small shop like us, when I first took over Just Leadership in 2018 and coming from federal government, managing the second chance portfolio, I felt like an octopus because I felt as if, for stable sustainability of the organization, because most organizations or business fail within the first five years. So as a new nonprofit launched international attention, we were just grabbing funding. But what that resulted in is me doing a different report for every funder because I didn't feel it was aligned to the mission of what this funding was supporting, right? So we've been able to strategize, come up with a strategic plan, that any funding that comes into this organization is going to support and align with our mission, right? To educate, elevate, and empower the most marginalized individuals in those communities, whether that's through training, whether that's through communications, whether that's through actually working with Congress to address the policies, helping them build campaigns. I now have a strategic plan. So no matter what funding we get, I can write a report that show, mm-hmm. demonstrates our impact, our strategies, where we've been able to touch people instead of actually building a development team that was more of donor management mm-hmm. around the reporting because we had to do all these different reports because every funder expected me to do something different. So what that has caused me to do, let's be honest, I don't have as much funding because I've kind of aligned and transparent with our mission And these are the funders that we actually go after and work with who allow us the space to be who we are, who allow us the space to be authentic, but also who allow us the space to invest in communities the way we have aligned with our mission instead of telling us what to do, which to me sometimes takes me off mission. As a small shop, I have probably have to hire a team to manage that grant for two years. And after two years, I'm perpetrating what I'm trying to disrupt because now I'm laying people off because that program no longer has funding. But if you support us as an organization, we can build our capacity around sustainability because we're aligned and driven. 
I think that's a, a, another critical piece that Deanna brings up. I think we often think about risk at the decision-making point of the funder and don't consider the risk to the organization after funding is dispersed. But then also, more importantly, after funders decide to perhaps shift and make a decision, we're no longer funding education or we're no longer funding a particular issue. And what risks have you exposed that grantee to after you have supported their organizations or their programs as opposed to their organizations? Just something I was going to, that just came to mind, Dan, as you were speaking is, is one, a question of, I don't think I even ask enough in engaging with partners, but what can we do together? And I think that sense of not like I'm giving you money to achieve our goals or that it's just a, a, a sense of like, okay, well, it's charity. I'm just giving you money. But it's like, we can strategically come together. We need each other. And I always try to say that, that I can't do my job without really good organizations who can execute on the work. And we know that really good organizations who can execute need the resources to do it. So that shift in power dynamic about approaching these issues is something that we can achieve together, that we need each other, is something that I think more funders need to do. And then that also led me to to think of when I heard you talk about the different reports and and reporting structures and timelines is that we can work together more. And we say this all the time. We always say we can collaborate and we can, you know, we can work better together, but it it really is something that, that just hasn't happened enough. And to your earlier point, Deanna, around folks, our foundations are often afraid to be the first. If you're partnering then you don't have to be the first, right? You're doing something together. And this, it is like you said, Alicia, where eventually your foundation says, oh, we're not doing education anymore. You're not dropping the ball on these organizations, right? They have other opportunities to to still receive funding. And and I think there's a, a role for funders to vouch for the organizations that they invest in. And so there's a responsibility for funders not to just say, oh, here's your grant, but to introduce you, right? Maybe you're not as, as out there. Maybe you don't have a celebrity connected to you, which to me is always a red flag, by the way. <laughs> Any org that has a celebrity attached to it, I'm like, I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> but, but then I can be the person to vouch for you, right? It's not just about our dollars vouching for you. It's actually me taking the time other funders about your work, even if I'm not able to invest in, maybe I say, this is a great organization and we, you know, it's not aligned to our work, but I think it's aligned to your work and I'd love to make a connection. Can I do that for you? And I think that we can, we can do that more as funders. I really appreciate that, Melanie, because I do think looking at it as a partnership and not just a giving of funding, right? And I'm going to hold you accountable, but this is a partnership And in reality, the mission of the foundation should align with the mission of the organization. So that would be a partnership to actually address and change. But also another thing we have to be strategically aware of is nothing in the world is going to change in one or two years. So not being willing, and this is kind of the conversation I've been having with funders. I have to, as a Black-led organization, say, do I take your generous gift over 24 months and knowing after 24 months, this generosity is going to leave versus going to with a funder who gives me a smaller gift, but gives me five years runway, right? Mm. Because those impacts, because as an executive director or president, what I find myself, I never can leave the organization because I'm always in fundraiser mode. I'm always in fundraising mode. And I have 
15 people, families who depend on me raising funds for the next year, that the stress that is on me to still show up publicly on panels, to still show up as the face of this organization. But after five o'clock, when everybody else goes home, I'm strategizing on what relationships and doors I need to open because there are 15 families making sure I can raise the funds for next year because I'm losing 2.5 million in two-year grants that's getting ready to drop off. Even if funders look at how do we wean people off? If I give you a million a year and we're changing our direction, we don't drop you. I think Melanie said it. We don't drop you. How do we wean you off? Because so you can start to replace, but we're introducing you to other funders as well, because our portfolio, our name is not as big as a Goodwill, a Salvation Army, but our impact smashes theirs of being in marginalized communities than you can ever think about, right? So what are we really looking at and how do we define that partnership is very important because we have to make real decisions sometimes that can cause us harm. But as a organization, if you really want us to have a presence and have an impact, how do we stay on that trajectory when we're always in fundraising mode because funders are only allocating funding for one or two years but change doesn't happen in that short amount of time. Right. And what I've what I've heard from each of you is like talking about this increased partnership that's needed between or among funders, um, thinking about risk management, right? Which is this idea that risk doesn't just end after you ask the question on the application. It's also about what happens post-award and, and throughout the, the grant as well. And then listening really intently to your grantees, right, to your organizations that you're funding and saying you're closest to the problem and likely the solution. So where can we leverage your your expertise? How can we support that? And so what a lot of this then comes down to is uh, accountability, right? Like how do you make sure that funders are doing exactly what we just described or creating an environment uh, that we just described? And so when we think about accountability, who holds folks accountable? Who is making sure that these grant makers are actually doing what we just talked about, that they are funding in the way that um, we're we're talking about? And, you know, Alicia, you said something that really stuck with me, which was we need to interrogate their grant making. Who's doing the interrogation? That's dangerous to be in, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it it is. So, are there certain grant makers I can have that conversation with? Honestly, yes, because we built a relationship, right? Is there fear of backlash in the power dynamics? There is, and I'll share one. When I first took over this organization, there was a huge funder that supported campaigns that were going on through this organization. And as I was coming in, um, looking at shifting, they wanted me to make certain hiring decisions. One, they didn't believe in my leadership. As an African-American woman, not from New York, how and never had touched feet in Clothes Rikers, how was I going to lead the Clothes Rikers campaign? I immediately had the conversation that they didn't understand leadership because leadership is not about me leading. My leadership is about me empowering other people who have been impacted to lead that campaign, which we successfully did. But two, she demanded I make a hiring decision in leadership that I was not willing to make. And in terms, let me know that if I didn't, that she would not be supporting this organization moving forward. And I had to be okay with that. And it was a huge amount of funding that we lost. But what I realized that I was giving up 
was my voice and authentically who I was. So the conversation switched and I remember returning the current funding we had because I was determined you couldn't talk to me like that. You weren't going to belittle me like that. But what that resulted in was her going to other funders, character assassinating me. And thankfully, I had relationships with other funders who knew my integrity of working in the federal government, managing $85 million federal grants, working state and local, that she was not able to have the impact. But I thought about the power dynamic of that position she was in because I wouldn't leave the power or do what she wanted me to do, which was not in the best interest of the organization, right? Because she didn't have close proximity and didn't understand leadership. But I always go back to that. And even today, when I'm in funder spaces, she shows up, she's there, we speak, we're cordial. But even in my organization, I will not submit an application to that funder for supporting funding. And she's huge in the criminal justice realm. But because of the power dynamics that she shifted on me, one, I know she's not going to approve it. But two, I have to maintain my integrity because if I have to lose my voice, I no longer need to be in this seat of leadership that I'm in. I think it's really critical for, to answer your question, Nick, and to build on what Deanna has said for, it actually, it made me, uh, your question made me reflect also on my role in the field and how oftentimes when I'm contacted either to sit on panels or to do some strategic work, some, uh, a common thread that I tend to get is that, well, you know, Alicia, we need you in the room because you're able to sort of speak the truth to funders. And so I think there's a responsibility for those of us who don't have the restrictions and the constraints of getting our funding cut to our organizations to actually step up and play a larger role in calling out and exposing those power dynamics. Like it's actually, it's horrible that Deanna would have to, just the fact that she has to remain cordial to someone who really tried that character assassination and also attempts to diminish the work of her organization in the field and calling out that specific issue. And I think it's a reflection of the lack of accountability that we have towards that we place on funders. And that risk and accountability is always just placed, put at the feet or laid at the feet of, of the grantee partners that are doing that are doing the work. And so I, in some ways, I, I also see that as a, as a call to action for, for some of us, depending on our, our positions in the field. I I would just say I agree. I mean, I think, Alicia, you said in a really interesting in-between space where you can be that that advocate or that person that that speaks truth to power. And I think philanthropy needs to have a reckoning. I mean, I, I can't very well think that people should be called out for one thing over here and then think, you know, but don't call out funders. We're trying our best. No, it's 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 these power dynamics that are in play are in philanthropy and and are in so many other things. And so my belief, as as hard as I know that it is, is that it should be called out. It should be a conversation that if we are committed to making the world better, whatever that means for different organizations and for different philanthropies, then we can't somehow think that we are immune to critique, that we are above critique, that we are not ourselves perpetuating many of the issues that we say we are committed to, to achieving. And so I try to build relationships with my grantees where they feel like they can come to me, but who's to say I don't have blind spots? Who's to say that that there still aren't things that I'm doing 
that I I need to be more aware of. And so I think there's there's moments when it makes sense to call out. There's moments where we we call people in and we try to, it sounds like in your situation, Deanna, calling in was probably not going to work. Um, but I do think that it's, and that is, let me also just say that is absolutely horrible and that is disgusting. And that is someone who who would probably behave like that in whatever profession they were in, right? Not to take anything off of, the responsibility as a funder, but that sounds like someone who who has their own issues and hasn't done their own personal work. A funder who is telling is advising you on on or even forcing you on hiring decisions. In 15 years, I have never done that. So I don't understand why someone feels like they have the right to do that. And you were right not to accept those dollars. But I do think that the balance of calling in and calling out is is what is needed. Yeah. And and what I'm hearing from you all is that if you're in the room and you're a stakeholder in this entire grant making process, like think about the role that you're playing when you're seeing behaviors, practices, uh, policies that are not in line with equitable grant making focus to call it out, right? Particularly when you are sitting in quote unquote the power seat or you are in that power part of the, the equation. Uh, so can I add one thing, Nick, that when I was early in my like starting in philanthropy, I had a colleague say to me that I have to be willing to risk my privilege as a funder to do what's right in the sector. And so that I'm in a position to, I'm in the room if the way in, in a way that my grantees aren't. And if I hear the way that we're talking about people of color-led organizations or the way that we're talking about an organization in particular, and I know that it's wrong, I have to be willing to risk my privilege as a program officer, as a director, as a whatever I am inside that institution to say, that's not, that's not right. And so I challenge other funders to do the same. And that concludes part one of the series. Next week, Nick, Melanie, Deanna, and Alicia will go in more depth regarding equitable grant making. Additionally, if you are interested in partnering with a law firm that leverages a global network of experienced attorneys with decades of legal training and practical experience and focuses on social impact organizations to serve as an outsourced general counsel and thought partner, then schedule a discovery call with the Campbell Law Firm today. The Campbell Law Firm works with brave nonprofits, philanthropists, ultra-high net worth individuals, and movements offering high-touch counsel to social impact entrepreneurs and organizations around the world. We would love to hear more about your brave mission to change the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.